0: Good morning. I'm Raji Sohal, and on the podcast today, the war in Ukraine is escalating, and we had a policy analyst on the program to discuss whether Mr. Putin is vying for World War III with all of his rhetoric, or if he's focused on destroying Ukraine. And we learned about the stink bug problem. It's been spotted indoors lately throughout BC, and we got the lowdown on what to do about them. But first bc cities have voted for their new mayors we talked to francis beulah from the globe and mail for her analysis good morning we are talking about the election results for the new mayors in bc and we're going to welcome to the program francis beulah she's the urban affairs contributor for the globe and mail good morning francis Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm a little bit tired because I stayed up late. Uh, trying we to get... all did. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I really appreciate you being on the line with us this morning. Uh, but mm-hmm. if there was anyone's reaction to get to this, we really wanted to get yours. Francis. we have uh, Ken Sim with a oh. decisive win, <laughs> defeating Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. What's your reaction to that?
1: Well, I mean, it was uh, what people were predicting, uh, both in in public and behind the scenes for the last week and there was some people wondering if you know Mr. Stewart's support might swing back start swinging up again in the last few days but it really looks like it topped out at 50,000 votes compared to almost uh well yeah just over 85 for Ken Sim, it's really a testament to how disciplined uh, their voters were because they elected every single um, candidate in, um, for park board and school board. Um, and the only reason that other people got in is because there were no more ABC candidates.
0: Yeah, so very decisive across the board there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to talk about Surrey with you because that's another one that everybody was watching. Uh, what's your reaction to the win there with Brenda Locke?
1: Well, I, you know, it shows me I'm, I'm, I'm uh, wrong one more time. I totally <laughs> didn't predict that. Uh, but, you know, um, it became clear when you saw the results for her that people were really annoyed about the police transition and just the goings-on at council under Mayor Doug McCallum and that Brenda had been the steady opposition voice to that for four, pretty much four solid years, and so people went to her
0: and people didn't seem to bother by the fact that she's been uh, uh, she's moved around in terms of her her values and her positions
1: uh yeah no i mean i think that um they felt that uh Uh, that they understood her values and positions and that she had, there were any number of issues where she voted against the mayor, not just on police, for example, that um, housing project for developmentally disabled adults um, that Doug McCallum's team turned down and Brenda uh, voted for that, Uh, you know, various other things. So people, I think, felt like they really knew what her values were. And even if she had been with McCallum's team uh originally she had, you know, left them pretty quickly and being a pretty steady opponent.
0: Yeah. And then she's been firmly in opposition to Doug McCallum with regards to the RCMP yeah, throughout her obviously. campaigning. Mm-hmm. And now the big question is if the province will even allow it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, they're going to, the province's approach to Surrey seems to have been whatever makes you people happy, so you vote for us during the provincial election. (laughs) Just tell us what you want. No tolls on the bridge, got it. You know, like... (laughs) (laughs) Um, A Skytrain out to Langley, it's yours. Uh, So my guess is that they're going to do what they think makes Surrey voters happy, and they're going to try and figure out a way to do it. They have no interest in setting themselves up as some kind of opponent to whoever is running Surrey.
0: And then what do you think this means for, with Ken Sim and ABC winning in Vancouver, what do you think this is going to look like for change in the city?
1: Well, I mean, I think the reason a lot of people voted for Ken Sim, uh, I think some of them might have been previously Kennedy Stewart and sort of left progressive voters, but they wanted a more orderly approach to what's going on. They wanted a cohesive team. Um, They wanted to feel like the crime and public disorder uh, and homeless problems were being taken seriously, um, not just sort of, well, the tents will be gone by, you know, winter and and we'll just wait it out or, or, you know, things aren't that bad. Like, even if crime statistics are below average, um, you know, people's experience out on the street has been that in some areas it does feel unsafe, and they wanted someone who... Took that seriously, I think.
0: All right, Frances, let's listen together to this clip from Ken Sim during his speech last night.
2: We are going to expand the responsible consumption of alcohol in our parks. And,
1: and we're going to bring back honors classes and the school liaison officer program. And we're, and we're going to bring a renewed lens, a compassionate lens, one that's measured by outcomes in the communities that need it the most. Now, we're going to do these things and a, a lot of other things, and we're going to do them together. But I do want to stress this journey is going to be really hard. There will be false starts. We will make mistakes, but we can't lose if we never give up.
0: Francis, what did you think about Ken Sims' speech last night?
1: I thought it was really good. You know, it conveyed um, his sense of you know, humor, uh, which I've seen many times over the past four and a half years, you know, he started off by saying that that I spent four and a half years doing the longest job interview ever. (laughs) (laughs) And then I thought he hit um, good notes and really smart to say, we're not going to be perfect, we're going to make mistakes, because inevitably, um, you know, that will happen. Although I think, um, they, he has three very experienced counselors, um, and especially Sarah Kirby Young, I think, is going to take a huge leadership role. So they're not going to be as green as some, you know, big new sweep councils have been. Um, I thought it was a, a good speech, very gracious, very generous. He also emphasized, you know, that he was the first mayor of Chinese descent uh, in Vancouver, and talked about the journey that had been for his family. I mean. Whoever wrote that speech did a really good job. And, I'm, and they only write the speech to reflect what they know the candidate really believes. So I'm not saying uh, false words were put into his mouth. I, there were a lot of nice touches in that speech.
0: Yeah, he was also gracious uh, to Kennedy Stewart, acknowledging just how hard of a job it must have been to run a city during a pandemic.
1: Yeah, yeah, he did. And when he acknowledged, when he talked about... Um, uh, you know, uh, councillors who had been before him, sort of paving the way for a Chinese, per- a person of Chinese descent, to become mayor. He gave credit to people from across the spectrum. You know, Raymond Liang from um, Vision. Uh, you know, as well as uh, you know, Liberal uh, MP Artley and and people like that. So, uh, a lot of nice, gracious touches, which fits in with my uh, experience with him. He's a, you know, kind of. Um, just a very socially EQ person, uh, you know, who pays attention to people around him and what they're, how they're reacting to him. So.
0: So Francis, what will be his biggest challenge as mayor of Vancouver? I
1: mean, I think it will be um, continuing, you know, he has said we're not clearing out the camps instantly. We're going to try to do things differently, but we're not, You know, not going to pretend that it's going to happen overnight. So continuing to steer a path, uh, showing that they are doing something uh, to try to make the city feel safer and more secure for everyone, including people on the street. Uh, and, And keeping to that path when maybe there's sort of still ongoing complaints that, you know, nothing is happening and so on. Um, he'll have a challenge um, you know, learning the ropes federally and provincially, as you know, we saw during the campaign. He doesn't even know the names of the housing ministers at the provincial or federal level, so right. he's going to have a lot to do there. Um, I'm assuming he's going to hire a really competent, experienced chief of staff with lots of those networks. Uh so um you know, but they have set themselves a difficult path. You, you know, the um team or, or the NPA had had kind of come out with much clearer, easier, you know, we'll clear the streets by December or whatever kinds of programs. Um, Mr. Sims longer term approach is going to be one where he's gonna have to keep the troops together when things don't improve instantly.
0: Yeah, it's going to be so interesting to see. Uh, Francis Bula, thank you so much for your time this morning, especially yeah, on so little sleep. Yeah, it's
1: going to be an interesting uh, few months and oh, few sure years. Is. It yeah. sure is.
0: Okay. Take care. Great. Have you started to notice stink bugs in your home? So I've only spot one and I summoned my husband from another room to get rid of it. And he grew up in Hawaii and thinks all bugs are our friends, yada, yada. So he carefully took it and placed it outside. I don't think I would have uh, necessarily done the same. I probably would have swat it, killed it there and then. I'm not even sure if that's what you're supposed to do. But the infestation is so bad that the BC government has issued a pest alert asking people to submit reports if they think that they've seen stink bugs in certain areas of BC. So are these bugs harmful and can wasps solve the problem. Paul Abram is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, and he joins us on the line now. Hi, Paul. Hi, Raji. Okay, what is this stink bug all about?
2: Well, so this stink bug's been in BC since at least 2015. That's when we first found it. Yeah. It's been in North America, though, a lot longer. Um, it was found in Washington State a few years before. So what we think is that uh, it, its home range is in Asia, China, Japan, and Korea. And what we think probably happened is that it arrived in North America via global trade. It probably spread up to B.C. from Washington State. And, and now uh, people are starting to see it come into their homes for the winter. They look for warm places to stay during the winter yeah. after, feeding on, after feeding on plants during, this, during the summer and fall.
0: Right. You said they came via global trade. What does that mean? Via produce that was brought over?
2: So we can never know exactly how they came, but we do know that these stink bugs are really hitchhikers. They'll, uh, they'll climb onto vehicles, onto shipping containers, things like that. And so uh, you can imagine with all the, the trade that goes on between North America and Asia, all the shipping containers that come over, we think those are the types of routes that bring these invasive species over.
0: Yeah, Paul, is it astounding that more bugs don't come this way all the time, constantly?
2: Well, they do. We, here in BC, we get two or three new invasive species on average, uh, invasive insect species every year. Um, of course, the, uh, some of these are pests of agriculture. Some of them, um, you know, they don't really come up above the radar for most people. But these ones, because they come into people's houses and they're big, stinky bugs, people are really noticing them.
0: Yeah, so they actually stink, right? When you kill them, they stink.
2: That's right. If they're disturbed, they have a, um, you know, what we call a defensive chemical secretion <laughs> that uh, that that they emit. And it kind of smells like, uh, well, I've heard it described as grass clippings as sort of rotten coriander. Um, some people are more disgusted by it than okay. others.
0: That's very specific. So <laughs> I've read that we're supposed to handle them in a very interesting way. We're supposed to kill them in an interesting way. If we spot them, can you describe that for us?
2: Well, I mean, there's no, there's no really uh, wrong way to do it. And it also depends on, on sort of how you feel towards insects, but, um, you know, if you've got a lot of them, the most efficient way to, to get the, to get rid of them is to collect them into a bag or vacuum them up um, or put them into a bucket of soapy water. If you collect them into a bag, you can just put them in, into the freezer for a day. Um, some people squish them. Um, that could be pretty time-consuming if you've got a lot of them. But, uh, you know, uh, if if you want them out of your house, the easiest way to do it is just to use a paper towel and collect them up. And okay. you can put them. It's it's okay to put them outside, like your husband did. These these bugs are well established now. So a couple that are in your house that you put outside are not going to make a difference to the overall population.
0: Okay, um, I did is, I did tell him about the freezer technique.
2: <laughs> what was the technique you had heard?
0: <laughs> the freezer technique. I just oh, it didn't yeah. seem very humane. I I don't like these bugs in my house, but I'm not about to put one in the freezer myself.
2: Yeah, actually, uh, freezing to anesthetize them is thought to be the most humane way to anesthetize insects at this point. So, Interesting. Uh,
0: yeah. And what's this about samurai wasps being able to help get rid of them? First of all, what is a samurai wasp?
2: <laughs> yeah, so it's a tiny parasitic wasp. Um, we actually have thousands of species of these tiny parasitic wasps already present in Canada and around the world. They're about one or two millimeters long, and they don't sting you like Uh, like the yellow jackets that we're used to thinking of that ruin our picnics. Their only mission in life is to find stink bug eggs, lay an egg inside them and have their offspring develop inside. And then instead of the stink bug nymph coming out, a little parasitic wasp comes out and then it itself goes and looks for more stink bug eggs. And so you can imagine that if these wasps are killing enough of the stink bug eggs, it can help to dampen the stink bug population. So these wasps are actually from the stink bug's native range of Asia. And about five years after the um, bugs were first detected in the area, the wasps started showing up. So we think that they probably came in via some of the same routes as the bug.
0: That is so fascinating. And and with these samurai wasps, because they're maybe helping get rid of the stink bugs, are we, are we meant to not kill them? Just leave them, let them do their thing?
2: Yeah, they. Uh, I mean, we're still studying sort of what the broader ecosystem level impacts are of these wasps. Coming in is, for example, we know that they can attack some of our native stink bugs. We have about 60 species of native stink bugs in Canada. So that's a concern that we're still studying. But uh, you probably won't notice these samurai wasps, just like the other thousands of little parasitic wasps that live in Canada. They mostly go unnoticed. Um, if you are out in your yard next year and you happen upon a stink bug egg mass, you can find them on the underside of the leaves and you notice a tiny little black insect walking around on it, that's highly likely to be one of these parasitic wasps. But we have about six species of parasitic wasps that look identical to the naked eye, to the samurai wasp in Canada. So to know if you've got a samurai wasp, you've got to submit it to, uh, to, to experts who know how to identify it.
0: Okay. Uh, Paul, thank <laughs> you so much for that. Very informative.
2: Thank you very much.
0: We're talking this morning about the war in Ukraine. Things there have escalated very quickly with more international resources backing the Ukrainian effort. But the Russian government has warned that more military aid for Kiev would make members of the U.S.-led military alliance a direct party to the conflict. Putin has said it could trigger a global conflict. To talk more about this, we have Melinda Herring on the line. She's a deputy director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council. Hello, Melinda.
3: Hi, good morning, Raji. Thanks for having me on.
0: So Russian state media has said that the war could escalate into a global conflict if Ukraine is allowed to join NATO. What does this intensifying rhetoric actually mean?
3: It means that Putin is running scared and has very, very few options. We should just ignore him. He's made many, many empty threats. He's threatened to use nuclear weapons, I think, three dozen times, and he never uses them. He's threatened uh, that there would be you know, dire consequences if NATO were to expand. And now we see Finland and Sweden about to join NATO, and there's been no consequences. So we should ignore him and continue to send all the weapons that Ukraine needs as soon as possible.
0: Okay. And Mr. Putin also uh, illegally annexed several provinces uh, after those sham referendums took place. And it's got people wondering, does Putin, does he actually want Ukraine or does he want World War Three? given these threats?
3: So he wants to destroy Ukraine. And that's pretty clear. You know, last weekend we saw hits across the country in more than 10 different cities and I have a giant map in front of me and it's so Ukraine is a very big country and the area that he quote-unquote annexed stole you know whatever word you want to use uh, is four provinces and it's the size of Hungary if you you were to combine the the land size so it's it's an enormous area of the country it's all the way east south and east Uh, and the uh The technical part or the hard part of this is he doesn't control all these four provinces. So he's, you know, held these fake referenda and they they literally went door to door and held guns in people's faces and said, which way do you want to vote? You know, and it's clear what you have to do. But he doesn't even control all all these provinces. But last weekend was key and we're going to see more of it, unfortunately. So there were enormous strikes on civilian targets all over Ukraine. And we hadn't seen uh, the city of Kiev, the capital, hit in months. And Lviv uh, was, was hit as well. Uh, and this is uh, one of the big cities out west that's pretty close to Poland. What this means, though, is Putin can't win on the battlefield. And he's going to resort to trying to make life so miserable. Ukraine is a cold country like Canada, so miserable that people can't live there. So there's no heat, there's no power, there's no Internet. But the Ukrainians are restoring the, these services
0: now. And and Melinda, we've seen Ukraine's army forcing the the Russian soldiers to retreat in the south Mm -hmm. in recent weeks. Mm -hmm. What more do you see happening with the abilities of that kind of offense?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Raji. So the Ukrainians have been engaging in a counteroffensive, and they said we are trying to retake the south. And it's a city called Kherson. And it's the city that fell very early on to the Russians. Uh, But it was a tricky move. So they made so much noise about it. The president made noise about it. The government made noise about it. And the Russians moved a lot of their troops down. Uh, And it enabled the Ukrainians to push in the north and then in the east. Uh, In the north, they were able to recapture a huge amount of territory. In the east, a little bit more. And fighting is really hard there. And then fighting in the south, where you asked, in Kherson, is very, very important. Uh, It's hard, and most military analysts expect Ukraine to retake Kherson. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be before winter. Temperatures are starting to decline, and anything that's tracked, any military equipment, is going to get stuck in snow, Uh, in mud. So there's about two to three weeks left for the Ukrainians to really push. But Kherson will uh, be recaptured by the Ukrainians. Uh, And then, uh, you know, most analysts are saying that that's the gateway to Crimea, to retaking Crimea. But Crimea is not going to be easy, and there's no way they're going to do that before winter.
0: Yeah. And these soldiers, some of these Ukrainian soldiers who are being trained, I, I saw videos of some being trained in the UK in these very mm-hmm. short spurts, uh, five weeks of training, training people, I should add, who previously had zero experience whatsoever on a battlefield. These are regular folks. Some are in their 30s and uh, doing completely other things in their careers. They never intended to be soldiers. Uh, how many What's your sense of how much of the Ukrainian population is still dedicated to this, to fighting this war?
3: That's a great question. So I, I would answer it a little bit differently. There's many ways to serve your country, and you don't just have to have a gun in your hand. So the, the Ukrainians are supporting the war effort. 100% of them are behind it. Uh, you know, this, this, this has completely changed the country of Ukraine. There's a huge volunteer movement. So Ukraine is not a failed state. It is not Afghanistan. It's banking sector work. It's railways work. It's schools work. It's hospitals work. They pay their pensions on time. These things are kind of jarring when you look at the images, you know, on the New York Times website um, or, or any of the major papers of, of these horrific war scenes. But this, the state is still operating and um, a lot of it has to do with this volunteer network. So there are normal people you describe the, the best logisticians in the country, people who own, who are millionaires, have uh, stopped their businesses and are moving humanitarian supplies and medicines across the country. There's another group of, of young people who are in their 30s. And these are people you know, who used to work for Ernst & Young. They used to work for law firms. They used to work in government. Right. They stopped what they're doing and they're delivering medicines all over the country, you know, to little old grandmas. So I would say everyone is behind the effort uh, and everyone is giving in different ways.
0: Yeah. And meanwhile, the U.K.'s economy is suffering due to the war. There, there's a budding revolution taking place in Iran. The Lebanese are surviving on one meal a day without Ukrainian wheat to make their bread. What does the latest level of threat from Putin What does that mean for the rest of Europe's reaction?
3: So the big question is, will the coalition in Europe that supports Ukraine, you know, with full-throated vigor, will that coalition hold through the winter? Because Putin has a history, a long-sorted history of using gas and oil uh, as a weapon. And he loves to turn on and off the tap and try to freeze people out and, and get them to agree to things they don't want to agree to. So we know that's his game. We know he's going to try that. But he has other instruments. You mentioned grain. So Ukraine is or was the breadbasket of Europe. It has beautiful soil, and uh, they they make tons and tons of grain and sunflower oil. And Putin's throttled the ports, and they couldn't get this grain out. There was a deal in July. Some of the grain is is coming out now, not as much as we would like. Uh, But the issue, though, is that deal expires very soon. Putin may not re-sign that deal. So that's one area of leverage. His gas and oil is leverage uh, as well. And he also, I mean, he, he's, a, he's a champion manipulator. He can cut internet cables under the sea. They could do more nonsense with, with Nord Stream. He has all kinds of options.
0: Yeah. In a piece you uh, had published on the Atlantic Council last week, you, you write that ordinary people still need to keep up their support wherever they are, here in North America, even for Ukraine. Do you think average people are losing interest?
3: No, no, I'm really heartened by this. So the Ukrainians are now, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the air, the Ukrainians are kicking ass and they are winning (laughs) a full throttle. uh, You know, and the momentum is really behind them. So thankfully there's a lot more attention um, in the news cycle. On Ukraine. And, and I see, uh, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and there's moment, momentum here. So on Tuesday, there's an enormous benefit concert at the Kennedy Center in honor of Ukraine with the, one of the world class violinists of the world. So I see more and more volunteer work here. I see, and, and it's not Ukrainian diaspora. I'm not Ukrainian. Uh, I see ordinary people wanting to give and help. But the article I wrote was challenging people to find new audiences who haven't given and who haven't helped. So if you're listening, there's many ways to contribute winter is going to be very cold in ukraine they need thermal underwear sleeping bags socks so i'm not asking you if you if you don't have a lot of money you can still knit a pair of socks there's many many ways to give
0: yeah including actually helping with the very local effort here in uh in bc where we're broadcasting from where there are many ukrainian uh displaced persons melinda herring as always it's really great to talk to you thank you so much for your perspective
3: thank you pleasure
0: Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.